0: In June 2010, professional weightboarder turned businessman Chris Smith appeared to be living the dream. Just 31 years old, Chris was in his prime. He was young. He was handsome. An article in GQ written by James Blahos described him as a ringer for the actor Chris Pine. He was rich, having just received a million-dollar payoff from a buyout of his company. And he was in love. Then one day, he disappeared. Chris did email friends and family to say that he was going off the grid. He wrote that he had chartered a 45-foot yacht and was sailing around the world with a former Playboy playmate named Tiffany. It was a shock, but friends and family were happy for Chris, who had long dreamed of escaping the matrix of the working world and finding happiness in adventure. It would take more than a year, and the discovery of decomposing tissue under the carpet in an office he used to share before they finally figured out the truth. Chris Smith wasn't sailing to South America or surfing the Great Barrier Reef. Chris Smith was dead. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. At first, Chris Smith's family believed that he had sailed off on an around-the-world adventure. But when he hadn't come back several months after receiving his goodbye emails, his family was growing increasingly confused and frightened. According to the GQ article, Chris had talked for years about his fantasies of living off the grid and not becoming what he called the moo. Basically, Chris thought that like cows, people tended to follow the herd, stumbling through life. His philosophy seemed to be a mix of Henry David Thoreau and the Beach Boys, He thought that most people lived lives of quiet desperation, working for the man. He sometimes told Friends that he dreamed of living a simpler life, off the grid, on a beach somewhere. And Friends also said that Chris believed in conspiracy theories, like the evils of big pharma and big government. He also invested in gold coins. His preferred currency was South African Krugerrand. This would have made it easier for him to travel under the radar. On June 7, 2010, he emailed his family to say that he was going on a vacation to the Galapagos Islands in Costa Rica. He said that he would probably be gone for three weeks. He would have no internet, no phones, just a stack of gold coins and a gorgeous girl on his arm. Chris sent his brother Paul an email attachment of his new traveling companion. But according to a 2020 episode titled Cutthroat Incorporated, while some of Chris's early correspondences sounded like him, the messages started to get weird. The first emails were filled with tales of travel and adventure, but later emails started to take a darker turn. Chris wrote, quote, This past year and a half was such a nightmare for me, and I even contemplated doing unspeakable things because I was so stressed, angry, scared, and confused, end quote. Chris's family says that he started sending messages that were completely out of character and did not seem to fit his happy-go-lucky personality. Another potential red flag was the fact that Chris broke up with his longtime girlfriend, a professional ballet dancer named Erica, via email on June 7th. She was devastated, and Chris's family said that they were surprised because he had talked about proposing to Erica. But they chalked it up to stress, at least at first. According to 2020, he wrote in one email, quote, All this traveling and living on a sustenance has me contemplating the meaning of life. I'm actually journaling now, end quote. In August, Chris's parents got an email stating that he planned to be away for another several weeks. At some point, he said that he had broken up with Tiffany and would continue to explore the world solo. In one message, according to documents that Chris's parents filed in a later lawsuit, Chris told his father, Steve Smith, that he was thinking of doing, quote, the unspeakable, end quote. Chris's parents were alarmed at the contradictory messages. One day he would be talking about drugs and depression, and the next he would email his brother to suggest that he come to Costa Rica to hang out. Also, Chris's arrival date back in the US kept shifting. According to a complaint filed by Chris's parents, Chris emailed to say that he was, quote, heading to Morocco via Cyprus, that he was jumping on a yacht with a guy he just met who was sailing to Egypt, and then he was going off to the Serengeti in the Congo, where he was going to try and find some diamonds, end quote. Chris's family say that by now, Chris was mentioning destinations that, in their experience with Chris, would not appeal to their surf-crazy son. Chris's lawyer, Ernesto Aldover, got a message saying that Chris was planning on staying out of the United States permanently. It read, according to the complaint, quote, I've withdrawn all my funds and will not be on record with the U.S. anymore, end quote. In December 2010, Paul received the last email from his brother, this time, Chris was telling them that he was going to Rwanda and then returning to the Congo. Then, the emails abruptly stopped. After they stopped getting any correspondence from him, Chris's family didn't know what to think. Had something bad happened to him in Africa? In March 2011, Chris's family reported him missing to the U.S. State Department. Chris Smith appeared to have vanished without a trace. And the State Department soon called Chris's family with even more disturbing news. Chris's passport records showed that he had never left the country at all. The State Department told Chris's parents that they should report the disappearance to local law enforcement. So, Steve Smith called the Laguna Beach Police Department to report his son missing. Desperate to find answers, his family reached out to one of the last people who they knew had spoken to Chris, his former business partner, Ed Shin.
2: Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
0: Chris, who grew up in Santa Cruz, California on a private lake, was obsessed with water sports, jet skiing, surfing, and wakeboarding from a very young age. He was so good that he actually became a professional wakeboarder. But it was hard on his body, and after injuring his Achilles tendon doing a trick, his professional career was over. In 2004, he was crashing on a friend's couch and plotting his next move. Chris, who lived in Laguna Beach in Orange County, had dreams of being a tech entrepreneur. He started by creating a few different websites, including one called Swellster.com, a social media platform for surfers with a high school friend named Brian Barton. According to San Francisco Gate, Swellster was, quote, a combo of Match.com and Travelocity, end quote. The guys had no office, just a van with the company's logo on the side and space for surfboards in the back. In 2008, Chris's life would change forever when he met Ed Shin. Ed Shin was Chris's polar opposite. Chris was tall, handsome, and athletic, and had never graduated from high school. Ed was married and a graduate of UC San Diego, he was a family man with three children and was a member of a Christian megachurch in Temecula, California. Chris lived in T-shirts and board shorts. Ed wore starched shirts tucked into designer suits. But despite his clean-cut image, Ed's business background was shady. At one point, Ed was running a company involved with sports memorabilia, but the business was reportedly losing money. When the former owner filed a lawsuit against Ed to collect the $114,000 they were owed, Ed allegedly tried to hire someone to do a home invasion of the owner, according to the oxygen special, a lie to die for. But since the burglary never actually took place, Ed was never charged. Joseph Stay, who was then the CEO of a company called LG Technologies, met Ed in a church group they were both members of called The Nest. He gave Ed a job at LG Technologies. LG was short for lead generation, if you remember those 1-800 ads that popped up on TV during the recession in 2008 promising easy credit, you've seen them. People call the 800 numbers and give them their information, and then companies like LG compile the information and sell the data to buyers. Joseph Stay later wrote about Ed on the website Dr. Metrics. He wrote, quote, I had met Ed Shen at church and had gone out of my way countless times to help him and his family. During the depths of the Great Recession, Ed had lost his own business and needed a lifeline, which I provided, giving him a job at Lead Generation Technologies and a new career path. Ed once said to me, Joseph, I have never met a person who has been willing to help me and who's made such a positive impact in my life. I don't know how to repay your kindness." Lead generation was big business back then, and Ed eventually became president of the company. In 2008, Chris was working for another lead-generating company lead point. Ed recommended his friend Chris for a job at LG, and Chris jumped at the opportunity. Working together, Ed and Chris saw the money flood in, sometimes millions of dollars per month, and according to experts, around 80% of this was pure profit. Ed may have been a family man at home, but it was his job to scout for new clients, and in Vegas, that meant working the convention scene. He tried to entice them with booze, women, strippers, whatever it took. Whether that was a ride in a Rolls-Royce or a room full of atmosphere models. Basically, women who were hired to show up, look pretty, and make Ed look like a player. Pretty soon, Ed was living a full-on double life. At home, he was an Orange County family man and church regular. But things in Vegas were taking a dark turn. Ed had a gambling problem. And what happened in Vegas did not stay there. Soon, his debts were spiraling out of control. He could win or lose $100,000 in the space of a couple hours, according to 2020. By 2009, Ed's friend Joseph could no longer ignore the financial irregularities that were continuing to mount. In March 2009, Joseph spent a week doing a deep dive into the company's finances. He concluded, to his shock, that Ed was embezzling money out of LG. Not only that, but using money that he had embezzled and while working for Joseph. Ed had actually formed a rival company called 800 Exchange. According to Joseph, Ed didn't just steal money, he stole clients. Chris was working for the new company, too. He had left his old job and was hired by Ed as an independent consultant, according to Chris's parents' lawsuit. Eventually, Chris became Ed's partner and had just under a 50% stake in the new company. Within a few months... Ed and Chris's company had money rolling in. In 2009, Chris invited his younger brother Paul to come work with him. Paul and his wife moved their family from Oregon for the opportunity and told 2020 that Ed was charming and seemed sincere. In October 2009, they were shocked when Ed was charged with felony embezzlement. LG sued Edward Shin, Chris Smith, and others in Riverside County Court. The LG complaint claims that Ed funneled a million dollars of its money into his secret startup. Joseph Gray would later claim that he estimated Ed had embezzled over $2 million from him in total. According to court papers filed in LG's lawsuit, Ed and Chris, quote, "...set up the company in secret and directed valuable business to that venture and to others, diverted leads from LG's lead exchange, defrauded LG misappropriated LG's trade secrets, converted LG's funds, and intentionally interfered with LG's business relations, end quote. LG sued Ed and Chris on the same day that they co-founded the 800 Exchange, according to the OC Weekly. At this point, Chris's parents allege in their lawsuit, Ed realized that Joseph and LG were going after his and his wife's bank accounts. And that's when they say he decided, quote, to wrongfully protect and advance the interests of Shen at the expense of Shen's business partner, Chris, quote. In May 2010, Ed pleaded guilty. To avoid going to prison, he agreed to pay LG restitution of around $800,000. In return, LG dropped the charges against Ed and Chris. According to Chris's family, he was shocked by the charges against Ed. He had had no idea that Ed had embezzled money. And authorities say there is no evidence that Chris knew about Ed's financial fraud against LG. Ed had to come up with $800,000, or he was going to prison. But there was one big problem. He needed Chris's signature. For months, Chris had been telling friends that he was getting suspicious of Ed. He had no access to the company's accounts, since Ed handled everything and he wanted to make sure that the company money was safe. Chris wanted out of the company, so he told Ed that he could buy out his partnership share of the 800 exchange for $1 million. There was a deadline to get the settlement signed. Ed had until the week of June 7th. Chris didn't want to sign the settlement until he could see proof that the company profits were in an account and that the million was held safely in escrow. He hired his attorney, Ernesto. In an email from Ernesto to Chris dated June 2nd, 2010, the attorney wrote, quote, Based on our discussions, I will insist that the monies for the buyout be put in an escrow first and that the operating agreement be signed before you sign the settlement, end quote. In another email, Chris wrote that he was concerned that Ed may be trying, yet again, to defraud him. He wrote, quote, We need to make sure he doesn't have room for fraud. He is itching to do it again. Also, we need all statements up to prior day of all activity in the U.S. Louvers account given to us, It can be provided by the bank if need, so Ed doesn't white out anything, which he will try, end quote. So again, according to the complaint, Ed had a habit of altering documents. This is something you see a lot in white-collar fraud and red-collar fraud, by the way. It's always surprising to me that with all the high-tech options out there, so many of these con men and women resort to the old-school methods. They white out words and retype something else, or use Photoshop, buy their own rubber stamps and embosser and fake degrees and professional licenses. On June 4, 2010, Chris met Ed at the 800 Exchange offices in San Juan Capistrano to complete the buyout. He emailed Ernesto in a message dated 12.34 p.m. It read, quote, I'm meeting with Ed now to go over statements. He fixed the login. Everything looks normal, end quote. But at 6.01 p.m., Ernesto received another email from Chris, it was an email saying that he was selling his interest in the company to Ed for $30,000. Now, this shocked Ernesto because, he would later tell investigators, this seemed to be the exact opposite of the strategy that he and Chris had been planning together for weeks. The document Ernesto saw read, quote, both Smith and Shin agree to execute the settlement between LG Technologies and all defendants, including Shin, Smith, 800 Exchange, LP Services, in exchange for a good-faith payment of $30,000 and 10 gold coins, paid to Smith towards the full unit purchase of Smith's units of 800 exchange by Shen. end quote. Later, investigators piecing together the crime scene would determine that at the time this message was sent, Chris was already dead. After Chris disappeared, his brother Paul started getting suspicious. First, Chris never showed up to pick Paul up from the Long Beach airport, when he came back from a trip to Oregon. Then, Ed told him that Chris had sold his share in the business and taken off to the Galapagos Islands with a Playboy Playmate. Then, Paul started getting the emails from his brother. And now, Paul, who was still working with Ed, was noticing some strange goings on at the office. Shortly after Chris left, a new guy started sitting in Chris's seat at the office. His name was Kenny Kraft, and his job title seemed to be somewhat ambiguous. Kenny admitted that he was hired as Ed's assistant, but said he spent most of his time playing on the computer until Ed wanted to be driven somewhere. Meanwhile, Chris's parents were getting more and more desperate for answers. They talked to Ed. Ed told them that he believed Chris was traveling under a fake name. Then he said he'd actually seen a fixer, who he claimed sourced a fake passport for Chris. But he claimed that the fixer, who he described as five foot nine with dark hair and stocky build, was MIA. Laguna Beach Police also talked to Ed. He told them that Chris had been afraid of the pending litigation and that he thought Chris wanted to disappear. Police apparently accepted this explanation and basically told Chris's family that they did not believe that foul play had been involved in his disappearance. Then, the case got some help from a totally unexpected outside source. In January 2011, Ed and the rest of 800 Exchange cleared out of their offices, stiffing their landlord for around $40,000 in back rent. The company hired private investigator Joe DeLue and his firm, Premier Investigations International, to try to find Chris and Ed so that they could collect. Joe tracked down Paul, who told Joe about the strange circumstances surrounding Chris's disappearance. Joe also eventually learned that after Chris went missing, Ed told everyone at the office that Chris got drunk, spilled wine, urinated, and threw up there. And that during the week of June 7th, Ed gave employees paid time off from work so the office could be cleaned. When they came back, the whole thing had been repainted. On a hunch, Joe, a former police officer, went to take a look around the vacant office space on Rancho Viejo Road and noticed a dark smear on the light switch. He later wrote on the blog at Premier Group International, quote, Trusting your gut is what you might call an investigator's superpower. Even though there was no reason to suspect foul play, as we walked through the door at 800 Exchange, I couldn't shake the fact that the space felt off somehow. Looking back, it's funny how something as simple as flipping on a light switch could start the series of events that transpired. In my former career as a detective, I had witnessed plenty of bloody scenes. It's normal in police work, but not at all normal for the average person to see. I know what blood looks like when it's fresh, when it's dry, and all states in between. I didn't need a forensic team to tell me the brown-colored smudge on the light switch was blood. Superpowers, remember? And blood drops are like rats. When there's one, there's always more hiding just out of plain sight. End quote. Even after multiple cleanings and a repainting, traces of blood remained. On the walls, under the carpet, even on the ceiling. Former Orange County Senior District Attorney Matt Murphy compared the blood patterns to helter-skelter. DNA testing confirmed the blood was a match to Chris Smith.
1: Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu.
0: After learning about the blood evidence, the Orange County Sheriff's Office was taking a new look at the Chris Smith case. Meanwhile, Paul was still working with Ed Shin, and he made a crucial discovery of his own on a business trip to Las Vegas. At an event with Ed, he saw Tiffany Taylor, the beautiful playboy playmate who had gone on a round-the-world trip with his brother Chris in person. Paul asked Tiffany what had happened to Chris. To his horror, she had no idea what he was talking about. Despite his calm demeanor, It turns out that Ed Shin had a long history of lying to people he worked with and of resorting to violence when his fraud was in danger of being uncovered. According to the oxygen special, A Lie to Die For, he even tried to con his own father by sending him emails posing as a kidnapper and demanding a million dollars for Ed's safe return. Ed finally admitted the truth to his family and blamed the incident on a nervous breakdown, according to the Orange County Register. As before, with the home invasion, Ed was never charged with anything. With the emails, it seemed that Ed, posing as Chris, was now doubling down on his intentions to never come back to the US. In his emails as Chris, he kept emphasizing that he was using no credit cards and no bank accounts. Authorities say they believe Ed's master plan was to transfer Chris's assets into his bank accounts, located in the Cayman Islands and around the world. Then, he needed to make Chris disappear forever. Ed Shin was arrested at Los Angeles International Airport on August 28, 2011, while about to board a flight to Canada. After Ed was apprehended at the airport, Orange County homicide investigators spent six hours questioning him. At first, he completely denied any knowledge of Chris's whereabouts. But eventually, after detectives confronted him with the physical evidence that they had, the blood on the walls and on the doorway, he changed his story. He confessed to killing Chris, but he insisted that he had only killed in self-defense. Ed said that when he met Chris that day, they got into an argument. Then, he said the fight turned physical. That's when Ed claimed that Chris had managed to pick him up, and then somehow Chris jumped up on the desk. He said that, like, two rams, they collided on the desk. He told police that he believed that this was where the blood on the ceiling had come from. Police didn't buy it. They believed that Ed was making up a cover story that would give him both a way to explain how Chris's head hit the desk and the spatters of blood on the walls. To get blood on the ceiling, authorities said, Chris would most likely have to have been stabbed or hit with a blunt object. When it was over, Ed said that he panicked. Chris was unconscious, his body lying in a pool of blood on the office floor. Ed claimed that he then reached out to a contact who he claimed he paid $10,000 to $15,000 to dispose of the remains. He said he left the door unlocked and that when he came back to the office on Monday, Chris's body was gone. He claimed that he had no idea where Chris's body was. But police believe that this so-called fixer, who seemed to be modeled on the Harvey Keitel character Winston Wolfe in Pulp Fiction, didn't exist at all. Police believe that Ed knew exactly where the body was, and they say that he won't reveal the location because this could indicate the cause of death and contradict Ed's fight story. In August 2011, Ed Shin was charged with Chris's murder. During the trial in Orange County, Ed's attorney tried to advance theories that Deputy District Attorney Matt Murphy called cartoonish. This included Ed's attorney claiming that Ed had killed Chris in self-defense involving the, quote, heat of passion, end quote. The prosecution had another theory, that the killing was planned well in advance. Ed knew that he was working on a deadline, and he needed Chris's money, and to make him disappear. On the day they met at the office, they believed that Ed stabbed or beat Chris to death, and later buried him somewhere, possibly in the desert. Matt Murphy said, quote, In the Liar Olympics, you were looking at the gold medal winner on the planet Earth, end quote. Joe Daly wrote on his company blog that he believes that Chris confronted Ed about the lies. He wrote, quote, An important thing to know about the personality disorder of narcissism is that once their protective and defensive veneer is cracked, they will expose the dark, selfish, and sociopathic behavior, End quote. For red-collar criminals, this is the classic pattern. When they're in a corner and the pressure builds to unbearable levels, they can and will strike out at those closest to them. Ed admitted that he had posed as his dead friend and sent the emails to Chris's family for at least six months. He said that sending the emails after Chris's death was the worst thing that he's ever done. According to the Orange County Register, Ed said, quote, It was a terrible thing to do to try to convince a family that their dead son is still alive, still traveling, end quote. But to this day, he denies murdering Chris. There was someone else who helped put a nail into Ed's coffin at his trial, his former assistant, Kenny Kraft. Kenny was arrested and charged as an accessory in Chris's murder. He pleaded not guilty, according to an Orange County news release. In an interview with 2020, Kenny said he had no idea what had happened to Chris. He said, quote, I had a vague understanding of what had happened. After speaking with Paul, he said it seems perfectly normal that his brother uprooted and took everything with him and went on some crazy adventure surfing, end quote. Eventually, charges against Kenny were dropped after he agreed to give the police information and to testify for the prosecution. According to court records, Kenny testified that he helped get rid of Chris's clothes and Chris's white 2009 Range Rover, while Ed started spinning the story about his friends' around-the-world surfing adventure. The car was eventually found in San Jose, California, in 2011. In December 2018, Ed was convicted of first-degree murder with special circumstances. He received a life sentence with no possibility of parole. At sentencing, Ed cried as he told the court that he knew he had committed quote, despicable acts against the Smith family. End quote. According to footage in a Lie to Die For*, he said that his soul was broken. The story made international news, and it's been covered everywhere, from 2020 and Dateline to People magazine. Chris's friends, family, and the investigators who became obsessed with the case after getting sucked in claim that there are still a lot of unanswered questions, and potentially, they believe, more victims out there. Joe Daly wrote, quote, There were too many coincidences to not notice workings in the spiritual realm that guided my actions to help bring this case to a close. Through twists of fate or divine intervention, I happen to believe in the latter, our lives have become forever entangled. My goal is to serve Chris's memory in the recounting of steps taken to bring justice to the Smith family, end quote. One of the victims, who spoke to KABC using the pseudonym Brian, told the news channel that Ed Shen stole up to $500,000 from him after they became partners in a mortgage business called Residential Finance America. He said this was back in 2003, and Brian had never seen one cent of his money. He said that he never pursued justice because it takes money to go after money. Brian said at the time, he didn't have any. Ed Shin had left him high and dry. He told the channel that he came to court looking for closure. Brian told KABC, quote, He doesn't care about anybody but himself. He lived off of our money until we found out, and when I confronted him, he basically just disappeared on us, end quote. He also said something else. Someone's lost far greater than what we lost. In the end, Brian seemed to realize that he was lucky that when he confronted Ed Shen, he only lost money. He kept his life. There's also the question of whatever happened to Chris Smith's body. To this day, it has never been found. There are some theories. Police found traces of blood in Chris's Range Rover and discovered that Ed had rented a truck shortly after Chris's death. They also figured out that on June 7th, Ed's cell phone pinged towers in Boulevard, California, a town near San Diego in the Mexican border. Police believe that Chris is probably buried somewhere out there in the desert, but the one person who knows isn't talking. Which brings me to my last call to action. As someone who's been working in true crime for a long time, both as an investigative journalist and a private investigator, I always give friends and family who are involved in volatile relationships this advice. Don't ever go back for your stuff. I've seen time and time again, people who went back to pack a suitcase or grab some clothes end up in a very vulnerable position. They're alone in an environment with an angry, cornered person who thinks they have nothing to lose. So many murders happen in these circumstances. And for red-collar cases, I believe that the same logic applies. Chris may have had false confidence that many red-collar victims share. He was young and strong, and could probably beat Ed Shen in a fair fight. He knew that his former partner was into some shady financial dealings, but he did not equate these with violence. This proved to be a fatal mistake. If you or someone close to you is having a dispute with someone in a desperate financial situation, don't meet them alone in the office. Never go back to close the deal. Red Collar is an audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>